Welcome to the HeartStrong Discipleship Podcast. Visit heartstrong.life forward slash login to access the notes from today and all the benefits of our membership community. One to the two and two to the three. Let the world see the Holy Trinity. Let's become HeartStrong Disciples of Jesus together. Father, thank you for another opportunity to sit at your feet and learn again of your word. Thank you for this day that's ahead of us, for your blessing upon each moment as we practice your presence. And Lord, we bless Dean this morning. Thank you for his preparation. And our ears are open and our hearts are open to receive. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Okay, so anybody brave to read or memorize the uh, Romans 12, 1 to 2? I'll do it. Okay, thank you, Marie. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Thanks. Okay, so this is my round two here coming up. Um, so welcome everybody. And uh, like today we're doing numbers five and six. So I want to do like I did like yesterday. I'm going to start with the first part of uh, numbers five as part of our five minute devotion. So I'm going to read it and then we'll um, talk about it afterwards. So the Lord said to Moses, Command the Israelites to send away from the camp anyone who has an infectious skin disease or a discharge of any kind, or who is ceremonial unclean because of a dead body. Send away male and female alike. Send them outside the camp so they will not defile their camp where I dwell among them. The Israelites did this. They sent them outside the camp. They did just as the Lord had instructed Moses. Okay, so in these Verses we see God's instructions to send people who are unclean, ceremonial unclean, outside of the camp. In this case, people who had infectious skin diseases or bodily discharges or had come in contact with a corpse were to be separated from the main camp. If they stayed in the camp, they would ceremonially defile the camp. Um, now, for our modern, it seems soulful and just that. Uh, you know, I've probably seen some uh, images of, you know, when the lepers would have to wear these signs saying unclean, stay away. And it seems all um, unjust that things can happen to people that make them def defile them, but it's not their fault. They didn't do anything wrong. It's just life happens, right? And, and so the question I ask, why did God tell Moses to do this? Um, does God himself find them disgusting? I mean, a lot of times people do find people disgusting when they have certain skin diseases. Does God find people disgusting? Is that possible? Was he afraid of the diseases would spread? Um, so there's a lot of, I mean, scholars have different uh, discussions on to uh, the purposes here, but I want to I raise one of the things that I think is one of the reasons for this rule. Um, I think it's important to remember that Moses was leading a people whose understanding of God was very limited. Um, for many generations, they had lived surrounded by a pagan culture. You know, they had grown up in Egypt, and there was paganism everywhere. 
they had heard of Yahweh. I mean, they, they heard of this God, of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but they did not really know them. They just recently received his law. Uh, God is holy, but in order to understand what it is to be holy, how to walk in holiness, we also need to understand what it is to be unclean or unholy. So these are concepts that had to be kind of um, ingrained in the people of Israel. So God had to start with the basics. And because the people of Israel are not spiritually, they don't have the spiritual insights that we have because we've received the Holy Spirit and we have the New Testament and, and then instruct us in a lot of different spiritual aspects. It was very much a physical lesson that they would have to learn. So he used physical examples to teach spiritual principles as his people were not spiritually aware. He gave uh, Israel's many laws that deal with clean and unclean. These laws were designed to reinforce the concept of clean and unclean. There was clean and unclean food. Unclean animals could not be used in the tabernacle, only clean animals. Only what was clean was acceptable in God's sight. And, and there's this also concept how unclean can contaminate the clean. And we understand this principle, you know, dirty hands will make a clean shirt dirty, but a clean shirt will not by itself um, make dirty hands clean. I mean, obviously. Um, so we see this here. And in this first example, we see three things that make a person unclean. We see the infectious skin disease. And this is not just limited leprosy. It can be several different diseases that people can have. Uh, bodily discharge and in contact with dead body. But each of these examples are a visible reminder of the effect of sin. God hates disease and death. And God used these examples to teach his people the dangers of uncleanliness as it separates us from God and his people. The passage also shows us that God desires a pure people. Fortunately, today, we have an understanding that the ancients did not have. Jesus taught that food and dead bodies do not defile us. And neither can skin diseases nor body discharges, as pleasant as they are, true defilement takes place in our hearts. In Mark 7, 14, 23, it says, again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, listen to me, everyone, understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it's what comes out of a person that defiles them. After he left the crowd and entered the house, the disciples asked him about this parable. Are you so dull? Yes. Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach and then out of their body. And saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. He went on to say, what comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it's from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from a, inside and defile a person. So the principle remains, our hearts can just separate us from fellowship with God and his people. As we look at this list, we can see the impact that certain heart conditions can have on a community. Like a contagious disease, it can spread. An angry or bitter person can have such a negative impact on the community that sometimes it's better for them to leave, as sad as that may be. Um, in 1 Corinthians 5, and verses 1 to 5, Paul told the Corinthians to expel an immoral man for his sake and for the sake of the church. Um, the good news, however, is that anyone, anyone, nobody, no heart conditions beyond God's ability to heal, providing, of course, they turn to God with full repentance and submission. Um, I had a friend one time that was just a situation. He had started coming to the church and he told me he had a difficulty with women. In other words, he used to get involved with women all the time. 
So he came, he was coming to church. He's trying to keep his way straight for a little while. It didn't last very long. And then he started slipping into his old habits. And at the same time, he started saying, well, I don't want to go to church anymore. And I kind of knew in my heart, no, he's got to get out of the church. He's dangerous. He's, if he's going to start seducing girls, this is the last place we want him. And I knew that in my heart, that exactly what God wants. And it's unfortunate and true, but sometimes that's, that's the best cure. Um, I hate to say that, but, uh, but when a person repents, then God's door is always open. So that's that for our, our uh, five-minute study there. And now I want to get into the, um, the rest of the scriptures. So we'll look at uh, 5 to 10 now. And this talks about restitution. The Lord said to Moses, say to the Israelites, when a man or woman wrongs another in another way and is so unfaithful to the Lord, that person is guilty and must confess the sin he has committed. He must make full restitution for his wrong, add one-fifth to it, and give it to all the persons he has wronged. But if that person has no close relative to whom restitution can be made for the wrong, the restitution belongs to the Lord and must be given to the priest along with the ram which is, with which atonement is made for him. All the sacred contributions the Israelites bring to the priest will belong to him. Each man's sacred gifts are his own, but what he gives to the priest will belong to the priest. So here we see the principle of restitution. So when a person does wrong, let's say, un, you know, he steals something or a willfully damages something belonging to another. And there's, once he's convicted of what he's done, confession, obviously, is the first step. But then there is a, a, a restitution is also required or applicable. And in other words, it's not just enough to say, I'm sorry. Uh, not only are they to restore what they took, they're also to add 20%. We see in the New Testament example, this principle of the tax collector, Zacchaeus, he told Jesus he would give back four times the amount of what he gained by cheating. We see this in Luke 19, 1 to 9. The death of the offended person does not release the offender from this rule. First in line is the offended person, then a relative, and if neither is possible, restitution is made to the Lord. Let's go to 11. And this is a very interesting passage. Then the Lord said to Moses, speak to the Israelite and say to them, <clears throat> if a man's wife goes astray and is unfaithful to him by sleeping with another man, and this is hidden from her husband, and her impurity is undetected since there is no witness against her, and she has not been caught in the act, and if feelings of jealousy come over her husband, and he suspects his wife and she is impure, or if he's jealous and suspects her, even though she is not impure, then he is to take his wife to the priest. He must also take an offering of a tenth of ephah, a barley flour, on her behalf. He must not pour oil on it or put incense on it, because a grain offering for jealousy, a reminder offering to draw attention to guilt. The priest shall bring her and have her stand before the Lord. Then he shall take some holy water in a clay jar and put some dust from the tabernacle floor into the water. After the priest has had the woman stand before the Lord, he shall loosen her hair and place in her hands as the reminder the reminder offering, the grain offering for jealousy, while he himself holds the bitter water that brings a curse. Then the priest shall put the woman under oath and say to her, if no other man has slept with you and you have not gone astray and become impure while married to your husband, may this bitter water that brings a curse not harm you. But if you have gone astray and while married to your husband, and you have defiled yourself by sleeping with a man other than your husband, here the priest is to put the woman under this curse of the oath, 
May the Lord cause your people to curse and denounce you when he causes your thigh to waste away and your abdomen to swell. May this water that brings a curse enter your body so that your abdomen swells and your thigh wastes away. Then the woman is to say, Amen. So be it. The priest is to write these curses on a scroll and then washes them off into the bitter water. He shall have the woman drink the bitter water that brings a curse and the water will enter her and cause bitter suffering. The priest is to take from her hands the grain offering for jealousy, wave it before the Lord and bring it to the altar. The priest is then to take a handful of the grain offering as a memorial offering and burn it on the altar. After that, he is to have the woman drink the water. If she has defiled himself and been unfaithful to her husband, then when she's able to drink the water, that brings a curse. It will go into her and cause bitter suffering. Um, her abdomen will swell and her thigh waste away, and she will become a curse among his, her people. If, however, the woman has not defiled herself and is free from impurity, she'll be cleared of guilt and be able to have children. This then is the law of jealousy when a woman goes astray and defiles herself or married to her husband, or when feelings of jealousy come over a man because he specks his wife. The priest is to have her stand before the Lord and is to apply this entire to, law to her. The husband will be innocent of any wrongdoing, but the woman will bear consequences of her sin. Now, for many of you, if any of you are really like are leaning towards feminism, you'd probably find this passage very difficult. It seems very unjust, very unfair for women because it's really focused on the woman. We're not talking about what about the man who's unfaithful to her, um, his wife and stuff. But actually, when I look at this, I actually see this is really a mercy towards the woman. This whole thing is mercy, shows mercy towards the woman. And let me explain this. This passage deals with marital unfaithfulness and jealousy. And it, because it's easy to focus on the man and think that this test for marital unfaithfulness was a, was grossly unjust to the woman is really for the man's benefit however it's really meant to protect the women of the time in ancient cultures women were dependent and fully under the authority of their husbands a suspicious husband given to jealousy could abuse his wife or throw her out even though she had done nothing wrong her name would be tarnished based upon her husband's uninstantiated allegations this could be her ruin this procedure would allow the innocent woman to prove her innocence and uphold her virtue before God, the community, and her husband. Think about it. The default of this is nothing's going to happen. There's nothing in anything that they're doing here that would cause a woman to get sick. In fact, the only way she's going to get sick is it would have to be divine action. So, you know, a woman who's innocent, she'd have nothing to fear. Um, and this would allow her to prove her innocence and her, uphold her virtue before God, the community, and her husband. If the woman was guilty then, however, she would bear the full consequences for her actions. The marriage bond is sacred and is of great worth in God's sight. Breaking this bond brings serious consequences. And it's no different today. Society may not impose these consequences, but there is a spiritual impact of adulterous behavior that can do much damage to the individual's family and community. There are spiritual laws in place, and marriage is under one of those spiritual laws. So whenever there's a, a divorce or the marital unfaithfulness, 
there are impacts, serious negative impacts. They may not come up immediately, but they will eventually show up because that's the way God's created our universe. So I, I think the key is here that marriage bound is very important to God and uh, something that our society has forgotten. So that's that for uh, that passage. So I want to move on to the next passage, which is uh, 6, 1 to 21. It talks about the Nazarite, about how to dedicate ourselves to the Lord. The Lord says to Moses, speak to the Israelites and say to them, if a man or woman wants to make a special vow, a vow of separation to the Lord as a Nazarite, he must abstain from wine and other fermented drink and must not drink vinegar made from wine or from other fermented drink. He must drink grape juice or eat grapes or raisins. As long as he's a Nazarite, he must not eat anything that comes from the grapevine, not even the seeds or skins. During the entire period of this vow of separation, no razor may be used on his head. He must be holy until the period of his separation to the Lord is over. He must let the hair, he must be, he must let the hair of his head grow long. Throughout the period of separation to the Lord, he must not go near a dead body. Even his own father or mother or brother or sister dies, he must take make himself ceremony unclean on account of them because the symbol of his separation to God is on his head. Throughout the period of separation, he's consecrated to the Lord. If someone dies suddenly in his presence and thus defile the hair he is dedicated, he must shave his head on the day of the cleansing, the seventh day. Then on the eighth day, he must bring two doves or two young pigeons to the priest to the, at the entrance of the tent of the meeting. The priest offered one as a sin offering, the other as a burnt offering to make atonement for him because he has sinned by being in the presence of a dead body. The same day he consecrated his head, he must dedicate himself to the Lord for the period of separation, he must bring a year-old male lamb as a guild offering. The previous days do not count because he became defiled during his separation. Now, this is a law for Nazarite when the period of separation is over. He is brought to the entrance of tent of meeting. There he'll present his offerings to the Lord, a year-old male lamb without defect for a burnt offering. The year-old lamb without defect for a sin offering, a ram without defect for a fellowship offering, together with their grain offerings and drink offerings, and a basket of bread made without yeast, cakes made of fine fire mixed with flour, mixed with oil, wafers spread with oil. The priest is to present them before the Lord to make the sin offering and the burnt offering. He is to present the basket of unleavened bread and is to sacrifice the ram as a fellowship offering to the Lord along with the grain offering and drink offering. Then at the entrance of the tent of the meeting, Nazarite shall, must shave off the hair that he dedicated. He is to take the, the hair and put it in the fire, which is under the sacrifice of the fellowship offering. After the Nazarite has shaved off the hair of his dedication, the priest is to place in his hands a boiled sh shoulder of the ram and of the cake and a wafer from the basket, both made without yeast. <coughs> the priest shall then wave them before the Lord as a wave offering, they are holy and belong to the priest, together the breast that was waved and the thigh that was presented. After that, the Nazarite may drink wine. And this is the law of the Nazarite who vows his offering to the Lord in accordance with his separation. In addition to whatever else he can afford, he must fulfill the vow he has made according to the law of the Nazarite. So here we see specific instructions so ever so often people i mean i'm talking about believers we want to maybe set some time where we want to dedicate to the lord i mean we live our lives always under the lord's blessing and we always seek to uh, serve the lord every day by our actions by what we do 
But there are moments in our, our journey where we actually want to set aside as a specific time of seeking the Lord, where we focus in on him. I had a, when I was in seminary, one of the things they do, there was a retreat center. It was kind of like a monastery and the uh, fellow, he wanted to dedicate some time. So he'd go there for a week and, and, you know, live in that very sheltered environment for a week so he could seek the Lord. So there's different things we can do. Now in Israel, uh, the same people would have the same kind of desire, the same kind of, uh, you know, they want to respond to God. They want to do something, dedicate themselves to God. So what God has provided, excuse me, provided here is a very concrete way for them to do this. And this is what they call the Nazarites. In this passage, uh, so the worshiper has a concrete way to do it. And in ancient Israel, the person would do these three things for a set period of time. He'd eat nothing, he or she would, and it could be women as well. He or she would eat nothing from the grapevine, including fresh grapes, grape seeds, vinegar, and wine. Avoid any contact with a dead body, including a relative. Entering a room or accidentally contacting a dead body would end the period of consecration. And no razor would be used on his or her hair during the period of separation. The hair then would become the offering at the um, expiration of the vow. Now, the, the biggest example we see in the Old Testament of a Nazarite was Samson. Um, and we're going to look at Samson in a minute. At the end of the vow, the Nazarite would present a bird offering, a sin offering, a peace offering. And finally, they would shave their hair and place the hair on the fire under the sacrifice of the fellowship or peace offering. And so Samson was a Nazarite from birth. Samson's hair represented his separation to God, and God blessed him with supernatural strength. Once the hair was shaved off, God withdrew his strength as Samson's separation to God was no longer in effect. It wasn't that there was anything powerful in the hair. It was his representative of his separation to God. And that's what gave him his strength. It's all from God. It wasn't nothing of his own. So Samson's power was not in his hair, but rather in his concentration to God, who provided supernatural power. And of course, the thing is, providing they follow the rules, then that hair would be acceptable to God. If not, they'd have to start over. So that's the Nazarite. Uh, and now we're going to finish up today with, um, want to finish up today with this very well-known priestly blessing. You've probably all heard this, and it's found in Numbers 6, 22 to 27. So I'm going to read it, and then I want to play a video that I think is a beautiful video involves our brothers and sisters from 154 countries and 247 languages singing this priestly blessing. But I want to read this verse. The Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, his son, this is how you bless the Israelites. Say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. So they will put my name on the Israelites and I will bless them. So let's, uh, I like to listen to this now. Thank you. 
a little vision of what it'll be like in heaven when we have all the different people from all the different nations. And if you've noticed there, 
you can see some visible evidence as some of our, our brothers and sisters are still um, in very serious situations where they can't worship freely. I think Afghanistan, Yemen, and Saudi Arabia, they had to actually fog them out so that nobody could uh, report them. So, but anyway, so that's all I have for today. Um, I guess I could pray for those who have to leave. Jesus, I just want to thank you, Father, for today. For those who must leave now because um, they go on to, on to their day, I just pray you bless them, go forward, go with them, Lord. That we just pray the ironic blessing on them, Lord, as they head out into their day in Jesus' name. Thank you for joining us today. A heartstrong disciple of Jesus is one who has been saved by grace and is becoming more like Jesus by abiding in Him, learning how Jesus lived, and following in His ways. One of the ways we are helping you become heartstrong is through the monthly training plan, which breaks down how you can practice and develop your spiritual disciplines. Each month, you will find the theme and the focus for the month, a scripture to memorize, a fasting and a Sabbath practice, all of your Bible study, events, and schedules and links, questions for personal reflection, and additional recommended content for the weekend. Of course, you have to be a HeartStrong member to access this awesome resource. So visit heartstrong.life and click membership to join. Let's become HeartStrong disciples together. One, two,